Bonzilla presents Die Hard. Our Die Hard journey begins as Bruce Willis becomes a star in the original 1988 classic, Die Hard. Everybody, once again, it is time for Bondzilla presents. I am Nick. I'm Will, and uh, we are back once again with our uh, crazy schedules and life and and everything. But we're here once again for more Bondzilla fun, and uh, we're gonna start taking on a franchise that, in some ways, has been near and dear to our hearts, and and, and has been a decent part of our relationship in some respects. <laughs> Um, outside of the podcast, uh, Will and I have a very um, long history of talking about and discussing the the life and times of Bruce Willis and and the Die Hard franchise, uh, just in our regular everyday lives. I like that the life and times, the life and times of Bruce Willis. Yeah, and you know, obviously, we've we've had the recent sad news about about Bruce, and we, we, we Bruce's was has been a person. Uh, his career has been very easy to enjoy and also make fun of i mean yeah. and that's just the truth of him uh but he is such an iconic presence and I, I i when we were discussing new franchises it just felt like this would be a fun one to dig into to really dig into really the whole career in a sense of bruce willis's film startup because it starts with the movie we're going to talk about today which is die hard and we're going to definitely get through the different eras of Bruce Willis as an as a celebrity as a film star, uh, just even through just the Die Hard films, and as much as we'll probably over the course of these five films sort of poke fun at his acting style, um, it also is a way in a sense to sort of honor the, the 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 superstar that he was. It's just sort of the the fun presence he always was, even in the roles that you know he wasn't really giving two shits about or you know or even what we know now might have not been able to know that he was giving two shits about it so um i just felt that it was like a fun it would be a fun time to go back through these films especially because i think they are films that again go over the 80s to the the modern film you know uh film industry Mm -hmm. and really showcases sort of a shift in action filmmaking styles and in, in, in a different ways. And I think this, it would be interesting to go back and, and talk about uh, this film franchise. That's why I chose it. Especially because of the high regard that, you know, uh, this first Die Hard movie is. And, yes. Uh, it, it, it is interesting because it has been through the ringer of a lot of like modern action movie making. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like a, it's a de- it's a it's an interesting uh, path that it had taken. Yes, yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to to discuss 
the ins and outs and sort of all the different facets of what this franchise has become, because it is very much an iconic action franchise. Um, And I think that each film does have an interesting little story to tell, Uh, especially because it is like another franchise where we're going to get to go through a number of directors, a number of notable acting names, especially in this first one. There's a lot of interesting sort of little details about sort of, its influence on, on the industry and, and the sort of eras that it encompasses. So I'm very excited to talk about it. And again, this is something of a franchise that Will and I have had a good chance to talk about many of its ins and outs just in our personal lives about this first movie about Kevin Smith. We'll talk about a little bit over the course of the podcast. Yes. Um, and, and, and once we get to a good day to die hard, I think that's, that's what we're really. This is that'll be the main event. That, that's really why we're doing this. <laughs> yes, yeah, to talk about that movie on uh, on these podcasts. But uh, we are here to talk about the original classic, uh, Die Hard, the original from 1988. Let's do uh, it. So, the story of Die Hard uh, as a film. Uh, starts with screenwriter Jeb Stewart. Uh, he was a screenwriter that had high hopes in the earlier 80s, uh, but was by 1987 in sort of a bad financial situation for himself. He had sold a script to Columbia that didn't pan out. He had a development deal with Walt Disney Pictures when they were starting their Touchstone and more adult-oriented films uh, that also was basically he wasn't really writing anything. And so he was sort of looking for uh, just some income to go to, to make things work, to make things work for his life. Um, so his agent at the time was... Uh, looking for some work for him and found that Fox was looking to develop a film based on the 1978 novel, nothing lasts forever, um, which was a novel that was actually a sequel to a film uh, or a novel, the detective, which was already adapted for a feature in 1968 starring Frank Sinatra. But Fox kind of had the general rights to this series of uh, books that starred uh, police officer Roderick Thorpe, again, previously played by Saint Frank Sinatra in 1968. And they were looking to be like, hey, maybe we can do something with this and we can figure something out just because we have the rights to this novel. Why not? Um, so uh, 20th Century Fox and the uh, production arm that was giving um, you know, this, this book to Stewart to try to adapt this from some quick contract to work to make a quick quick paycheck for him uh they're like okay well you know you're adapting this novel but we you you have freedom we're not really looking for a straight adaptation of this novel uh the main thing that we want to keep from this novel is the christmas in los angeles setting and sort of the main building as as the setting sort of the book itself was originally inspired by the towering inferno and fox uh, was looking for a similar type of scenario, maybe not a disaster movie like The Towering Inferno, but something similar in the sense of, hey, one location, you know, something of that nature. When Jeb Stewart was writing this, he sort of had this idea of, okay, so it's Rambo in an office building. That was sort of his goal in, in terms of writing it, especially with the success of the film franchise. 
that was something that was very eager for 20th Century Fox to take. Hey, Rambo is very successful. Rambo in an office building, you know, me, film meets film. That's what we love pitching in the film industry, right? So uh, he kind of took that into consideration. It's a film meets another film. <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the main things that inspired uh, Jeb Stewart while writing this film was an incident he had one day where, you know, he was still on this contract with the Walt Disney studios for writing and even though he wasn't really working he was working long hours helping hoping to develop something for them while also writing this script and his office was located on the disney lot at the time so he would work basically very long 15 hour days trying to write and trying to stay in this office and he would kind of get in arguments with his wife about you know working so late and being home and and everything like that and one time he got in an argument with his wife and uh, then immediately started driving home and uh, like a box fell out of another truck and he had to like choose to swerve out of the way of the box or like hit the box. He didn't know if anything was in it. He chose to, he couldn't swerve. He hit the box. Luckily it was empty and it didn't really affect his car in any way, but he sort of thought that, well, you know, that kind of put in perspective, like, well, I should have just apologized to my wife and, you know, making sure I apologize before the catastrophe happens and sort of that relationship dynamic. And he felt that that relationship dynamic between the main cop and the wife character that he was developing would be a very interesting thematic dynamic for the movie. Uh, and he ended up kind of really pushing that idea of these, you know, separated married couple and took a lot of inspiration from a lot of his screenwriting friends who had been divorced or had, you know, wives take the maiden name stuff like that like a lot of that was from like his personal life that he took from from his friends so 20th century fox was very happy with how the film development was happening and decided to start looking for a director that this was kind of looking for this was looking good this was looking like an idea that could be uh developed into something bigger so they started to look for a director and the directing chair eventually uh led up to john mctiernan uh, who had been notable as well at Fox for his work on the 1987 release Predator. Uh, and one of the things that 20th Century uh, Fox was very happy with in terms of McTiernan was, and it's something we'll possibly talk about sometime in the future on this podcast, but Predator was a notorious, very difficult uh, production uh, in terms of the location shooting and dealing with the alien costume and just it was a movie that was a lot of work to make work. And McTiernan made it work. And even with mixed critical reception was a very big success for the studio. So McTiernan was sort of a hot name for them. They really liked working with him and thought they would bring him in for this movie. And McTiernan started his immediate uh, work on putting his stamp on the movie by discussing with the writing team and Fox and everybody that he was interested in the movie with the one caveat that he wanted it to be fun because he felt that a lot of terrorist movies were very dour, very dry. And he felt that while just doing terrorist stuff is not going to make it fun. We want to make this a fun movie. It's a fun concept. We can have a fun lead here. So let's do something fun with it. So it's McTiernan that comes up with the idea of moving the novel 
and moving the story from being just about terrorists to terrorists posing as thieves because it would give them a lot more freedom to have some fun as opposed to these terrorists having having some actual ide- ideological thing they're going for and maybe they're partially right, yada, yada, yada. The fact that they're just thieves, like kind of using this as a cover, allowed him to have a lot more eye on the fun part of the movie. And that would continue to develop as they got uh, into the movie proper. So Stewart is still writing the film. Eventually, McTiernan also brings on screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza um, to rewrite the script to give it that little bit more comedic element to it, which was McTiernan was really eager to play with. Um, and in the midst of that rewriting, we start our casting process. So Fox realized very quickly that because they were technically adapting a novel that was a sequel to a film they already made per the contract that Sinatra had signed with the detective in 1968, they had to offer their title role of Jerry McLean to Sinatra first. Um, at this point, it was 20 years past the detective. Sinatra was 70. He was not interested in acting anymore. Uh, so it was all mutual. It was more of a formality. Hey, we're making the sequel. We have to ask you first. Yeah, I don't want to do it anyway. Perfectly fine. So at this point, Fox was looking for a notable name. Uh, and a lot of the major stars of the era were asked. If you were, if you were an 80s action star, you were, you were in mind. You know, Sylvester Stallone, Harrison Ford. Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, James Caan, Paul Newman, like every sort of scenario of like a major star at the time was asked. And eventually the, 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 the eye was on Arnold Schwarzenegger to take on the title role of John McClane, not title role, but you know, the main character of the film, uh, because again, Schwarzenegger was one of the hugest action stars and, you know, had worked a long time McTiernan and Predator already. Um, there was even a consideration at one point of shifting the script to be a sequel to the other Fox uh, Schwarzenegger film, Commando. But Schwarzenegger was very eager to start branching out other things and felt that Die Hard would be just a similar thing to Predator, to Commando, to all the other things he had done. And he wanted to start branching out to other genres. So at this point, Schwarzenegger turned down the role of John McClane to make twins instead with Danny DeVito because uh, he wanted to start doing comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually it's McTiernan that says, well, we're kind of trying to sort this into a comedic role, right? So let's get someone that we know at least can do the comedy part of it. And McTiernan was a fan of Bruce Willis on the television sitcom Moonlighting. Moonlighting. Yes. Um, which was what, you know, Willis was known for at the time. He was known for as a sitcom comedian. And it was McTiernan that kind of pushed to, for Willis to kind of take a chance, uh, take a chance on Willis, who he thought had big star potential, but was just on television at the time. And Willis was actually going to say no because he was committed to moonlighting and he there was no way he was going to make the filming schedule work out with his contract. But during the uh, season that they were working on, his co-star, uh, Sybil Shepard, uh, got pregnant and had to take an 11-week break from filming to show to give birth. And that 11-week break allowed Willis to be able to take the Die Hard 
uh, the film and become John McClane. Now, from an industry perspective, casting Willis at this point was a huge risk for a movie like this, which was going to be another bankable 20th Century Fox action thriller, uh, something that the studio had become quite known for over the course of the 80s. And, you know, we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast, but 1988, you know, this is right in that era, right, where, hey, uh, Pierce Brosnan can't be Bond if he's on Remington Steel at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is an era where the, the, the TV star had not had big success moving to movies. I mean, we're also right off the heels of the very infamous Shelley Long leaving Cheers to become a movie star and failing miserably. At the well, at this point, like same thing was happening to Bill Cosby. A lot of his feature films off the Cosby show were not doing too hot. It was really sort of a big thing where it's like, well, a TV star can't become a movie star. Like you try that. They're two different worlds, even in one industry. And then we talked a little bit about that, too, back when we talked about the Bond thing. And I think like even at the time, I mean, it's obvious now, but like at the time of when we initially had that conversation, um, you can't keep people off of TV movies. You know, it's like just you were in a movie like you like they'll be on a TV show. Mm-hmm. Like it's like there, there's like almost at this point, no actual barrier. Yeah, no, absolutely not. It was just, it's just interesting to see at that time. It really was like, again, the same industry, the same city, a lot of these shows and movies are being made right next to each other, but it just felt like two different worlds. Like you were a TV star. And then like the movie star was like the next step up, right? If you were not good enough to be a movie star, you were a TV star. And, and so the casting of Willis was very, interesting for a lot of people because they felt it was almost an unnecessary risk for the movie to take that you could have gotten like a Stallone or a Nolte or some sort of more notable action star that had you know previously been box office success the fact that this would be Willis's second film ever like and he had done a romantic comedy that had done okay not not bad but not great prior to this otherwise Moonlighting was his one big notable thing uh, and Willis was eager to kind of take on something different um, and uh, was also someone who worked closely with with McTiernan and closely with uh, the writing, the writing crew to to kind of really move the character. And what's interesting, too, is that uh, McTiernan and Willis both talk about uh, in, in older interviews that the, the total character of John McClane wasn't really settled until sort of you know, halfway through the production. And, and Willis came into the production late to actually start shooting to because he had his moonlighting commitments up until when Shepard was going to actually leave for her maternity leave. So, you know, he was kind of later into the production and it's McTiernan and uh, D'Souza who kind of figured out that alongside Willis that w- McLean is a character that they said was someone who hated himself, but was trying to make the best of a bad situation and trying to really find kind of what he liked about himself throughout this movie. And that was something that Willis took to heart. Uh, even though Willis also said that it was very difficult for him with this movie, especially being like a very first big movie, because unlike with Moonlighting, where he got the playoff, you know, Sybil Shepard and the rest of the cast, he kind of got to play that sort of comedy face to face. McLean is alone for a good portion of the movie. And so it took a lot of him sort of coming through to his, you know, acting roots to really sort of come up with how to perform just with the director and, and the crew in the room. 
Um, another person making their film debut in this movie is our villain, uh, one Alan Rickman. Uh, so Alan Rickman, obviously very iconic now, but at the time was really a stage actor who had done occasional television shows for the BBC. Nothing too crazy. Was 40 already at this time and had sort of committed himself to being, hey, I'm a, I'm a kind of stage actor, smaller actor, not really looking to be anything bigger than that. It was McTiernan and producer Jill Silver who saw Rickman on stage on Broadway uh, performing a version of Les Liaisons Dangereux. And he was the villain in that one. And it's a very famous play, very famous performance, uh, very famous villain. And it was Silver who was eager to kind of like, this guy has such a charisma that he he's going to make such an interesting villain. And it was interesting too, because D'Souza, when he was rewriting the film, one of the things that helped him most was writing the film as if Rickman's character, Hans Gruber, was the protagonist. And in a sense, it's like, well, it's a movie that, hey, if Hans Gruber isn't there, then, you know, John McClane may or may not make up with his wife. They just have an awkward Christmas party and life goes on. And so writing sort of from the perspective of like it's Hans Gruber who makes the plot go in motion and that McClane is sort of the, the thorn in Hans Gruber's side is what really kind of helped bring that character to life and and and. McTiernan loved working with Rickman and afforded him a lot of opportunity to expand the role even further, including a, a famous story where uh, producer Joel Silver wanted some sort of scene between McLean and Gruber before the end of the movie. And McTiernan and D'Souza were having a very difficult time thinking of what, how could you possibly do that without kind of spoiling like you know the the whole point of the movie which is like they're they're talking on the radio they never see each other and it was McTiernan who overheard at one point Rickman trying out an American accent just to, for the amusement of the crew mm-hmm. and then they said that's what we do so they actually completely shifted some elements of the earlier parts of the movie so that McLean never knew what uh, what Rickman's character looked like. And so they kind of created that whole sequence in the movie. And a lot of that was from Willis, McTiernan, D'Souza, and, um, yeah, and Willis and all the whole four of them kind of playing that up together. Uh, and, and McTiernan allowed a lot of improvisation on, on, on the film as well. We have Bonnie Bedilla as uh, Holly Gennaro um, McLean. Um, and McTiernan also caught her from a performance in the film Heart at Like a Wheel, thought that she would give the film a strong presence. He wanted to cast sort of a, a strong, he felt like he wanted to give that performance a strong, um, a, a strong female character to an extent. She's a, she's a leader. She's a badass in her own respects. And yes, John McClane is going to go save her, but she kind of takes charge as we see in the movie and felt that uh, Bonnie Bedelia could give that performance. Um, and again, even uh, little bits of like her and Rickman sort of figured out how to kind of interact with each other throughout the movie. And McTiernan was very eager to allow that to to, to kind of blossom. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, so we also have uh, Reginald Bell Johnson as our cop uh, buddy in the movie, Al. Um, 
and he was someone who was a friend of the casting director, again, similarly to someone like Rickman and even Willis was someone who had some experience, but not really, you know, notable star status at all. And essentially the casting director had casted him in, in, in other stuff before and, and kind of casted him as, as a favor. It was just like, hey, I like you. You're a friend of mine. I think you'd be good for this role. Let's get you on there. Uh, even though the, the role was considered for bigger stars, such as Wesley Snipes and Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall, uh, the casting director was like, well, I, I, like, I like Reginald. I like his uh, performances. I like him as a person. Let's give him a role as well. So one of the best performances in the movie, um, Alice, <laughs> Slimeball Alice himself, as played by Hart Boncher, um, who was a friend of Joel Silver. And again, Joel Silver kind of cast him as a favor, uh, which was not, not popular with McTiernan because McTiernan was looking at that character more of a Cary Grant, sort of like I view myself as the hero of my story kind of character, um, more suave and more kind of like an actual gentleman than, than Alice ends up being. But when, uh, when Hart Busher had read the role, he completely imagined the character as a cokehead. And then a lot of his decisions were made by being, you know, addicted to cocaine. And so McTiernan was like, kind of had to acquiesce to Joel Silver's casting and, and like, Oh man, like I, I'm not really enjoying this, but then saw that everybody else was really enjoying the performance and thought it was funny. And that eventually got McTiernan on board. It's like, maybe this is the right decision uh, that we have as well. Um, also love Paul Gleason as the deputy chief of the LPT, Dwayne T. Robinson, perfect asshole character. Also, of course, the, the principal in the breakfast club. And uh, we also should mention that we have a Bond villain in this film as well. Um, our former Sanchez, Robert, uh, Robert Davi, is among one of the agent Johnsons of the FBI as well. Um, Filming takes place from November 1987 through March 1988 with a release date set for uh, July of 1988. So they're going to have a fairly quick uh, post-production on the film to make sure that it gets out for that July release date. The, there was a lot of buildings considered for the Nakatomi Plaza, um, but uh, cinematographer Jan DeBont was really taken in uh, that's another name we, we've talked about. Good many old times. Jan DeVant. Jan DeVant, man. Um, he was very taken in with the look of the then under construction Fox Plaza, the headquarters of the Fox Corporation, and was thought that it would have a, an iconic look, that it would be like, hey, this is our Nakatomi Tower. He imagined um, looking at it from you know, like earlier in the movie when McLean's driving up to it and when, when uh, you know, Al's looking at it when he first gets the call to come in, he thought that it would be very nice to, to work at and look just the look of it would be very good from a cinematography perspective. And Fox took a lot of convincing for them to actually um, have filming actively on the building while it's under still under construction. But they eventually acquiesced in the event that uh, they had to pay themselves rent for the use of the building. And they had to make sure that there was no filming done during the day, during any office hours that for the parts of the building that were still good and that none of the explosions on the building would do any damage to the building itself. So uh, McTiernan and Jabant were very eager to say yes to those. 
And uh, so the that's how Nakatomi Plaza was uh, born as the Fox Tower, as a Fox Plaza. Willis, from a filming perspective, was was a workaholic during this time because, again, there was times where he was still working on moonlighting during kind of the first half of production. And for those first couple days of his production, he would come from, you know, 15 to 18 hour days on the no, I would say 12 hour days on the moonlighting set and then come in at night for like a full 18 hour day, uh, including his time working working on Die Hard. Um, and so, again, a lot of this time where, where, where Willis is finally coming into the movie is just when he's working with McTiernan to really sort of hone in on what the character is. And, um, you know, even his first scene, he came straight from Moonlighting. Um, and the first scene they had to shoot was him leaping off the building with the fire hose attached uh, near the end of the film. So he got right into the muck and uh, Willis really enjoyed kind of taking on the action role which is again something he wasn't really used to doing yes mood lining is kind of detective police procedural in a very different way and if anybody is listening has not seen moonlighting it's a very unique show and 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 a show that has a very much occult following for its specific style of comedy um and it's and it's liberal use of the fourth wall so it's a very different different style of series so willis at this time again this was sort of like something very new and something that he's very eager to to take on um and a lot of the movie was still sort of in the the the, the planning stages while the production was going because they had sort of this July release date. In fact, the very ending of the movie, a lot of things kind of switched up uh in terms of the end of the movie um which necessitated giving a bigger role for the Argyle limo driver which was supposed to disappear earlier in the movie. They kind of had the make him so he kind of was uh, there for the end for a heroic moment and sort of a lot more of the like stuff where it's like, Hey, like they were supposed to have the ambulance come out of the truck, but then the ambulance they got was too big for the truck. So they had to film another way for the ambulance to get there at the building. Um, And Theo was supposed to be killed, but they had to like reevaluate some stuff once they kind of cut other stuff out of the script and out of the movie. So the movie itself was very much under flux throughout the entire shooting, but that felt that what the Souza felt that allowed was again, a lot of improvisation from the cast and the crew on ideas. And it really allowed him to really set up a lot of the plants and payoffs that he wanted that like, there was a little bit more flow um, on him being like, okay, well we planted this year, so let's pay it off over here. And there was a lot more of that freedom, especially with, again, McTiernan as director, very eager to get ideas from people to let people kind of move. And that's why he was very popular to work with around this time, both from a Fox perspective and from an actor's perspective. Uh, but yeah, some of the most iconic lines in the movie were uh, improvised, such as the great Hans Booby, I'm your white knight. The quarterback is toast. Um, stuff like that was very much, again, eager to uh, McTiernan was eager to kind of let this movie be fun and as fun as possible because he felt that that's what made a really fun summer film was being fun. He didn't want it to be bogged down in the terrorist stuff. As we mentioned, he didn't want to be bogged down in the action that he wanted the film to be funny. He wanted the film to have such a joy to it. Um, and speaking of joy, one of McTiernan's other big needs they needed in this movie was the use of the classical film, uh, classical music track Ode to Joy. Um, and that was inspired by the use of Ode to Joy 
back in a clockwork orange. And he said, like, well, if Kubrick can use Ode to Joy, then I can use Ode to Joy. And um, the uh, composer of the movie, Michael Kamen, was very, um, he was very scared to use such a classical piece of music until McTiernan explained to him the uh, Kubrick connection. And then he was like, well, if that's the case, yeah, if Cooper can use it, then of course anybody can use Ode to Joy. Um, and uh, Kamen also was very much someone who was like, well, we need a lot of Christmas music in this movie. So we need to get those rights up to classic Christmas songs like Winter Wonderland and everything like that. So um, he was very he was very into the idea of, 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 of using the Christmas setting uh, in the score as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's really kind of the um, the production of this movie. I mean, one of the other things they needed to to go with, too, is um, Willis was very eager to perform many of his own stunts in the movie because he wanted to showcase himself as an actor that was willing to do that type of stuff. But this was also an industry that even if it was four years on, it was still very reeling from the issues that had occurred and the accidents that had occurred on Twilight Zone, the movie, uh, and sort of the perception of actors doing their own stunts was was back to kind of being a very almost negative connotation because it just felt like it was putting people unnecessarily in danger. But but Willis was able to convince all the insurance people and McTiernan and Fox that he was going to do it safely and that though. Though Willis didn't do every stunt, stuff like him jumping off the building and hanging off the building um, on models and everything like that was very much something that uh, he was fairly eager to do. Um, and that uh, that jump from the building, which was the first, again, one of the first days he was ever on the movie in terms of shooting, uh, it, Willis considered for much of his career to be one of his toughest stunts because he was so inexperienced with it. And with the big explosion behind him, it, it was kind of scary. Um, the other famous stunt story on this movie was they needed that shot of Hans Gruber falling from the, uh, uh, the tower at the end of the film and McTiernan wanted a genuine reaction of him falling. So they told him they were going to drop him on the count of three and they dropped him on one. And that little slow motion shot of Gruber, uh, falling from, uh, the tower, uh, the close up, of course, um, was, was a genuine shock from uh from uh, alan rickman and allegedly he was not happy about it but eventually it was like well it was good for the movie so he kind of acquiesced to it yeah and that's pretty much it i mean obviously they rebuilt the fox tower as well um as a miniature model uh for some of the more wider explosion shots and and all that nature um and uh same thing uh specifically with the rooftop explosion that was a miniature model McTiernan was very eager to make this seem as as, as real as possible. And to that extent, uh, we talked about the Alan Rickman one um, as like, but there's no way you could fake that. So we had to drop him early. Uh, and there was months of negotiation between McTiernan and Fox in terms of driving a SWAT car up the steps of the Fox Plaza. But eventually McTiernan got his wish. So, yeah. And in this film, um, eventually they get to that release date of July of the 1988, July 15th, 1988. And it was a film that was very passionate to everybody involved, but to Fox, it was like, well, this is another action movie for us to do. And yes, there was a lot of 
chances being taken with the movie. It was, hey, we're getting this actor from television and we already know how that has gone for a number of people. We're getting this villain who's only been on stage. We're getting a director that, you know, had just had a tough production on Predator. And yes, he was able to make it work, but still sort of a a new name in the industry. Uh, There was a lot of a lot of down expectations from the movie about around the industry of just like, wow, this is a movie that's taking a lot of risks and it seems like a simple enough concept. But, you know, again, just from the history of movie making up to that point, especially within the 80s. Yes, the action genre had exploded for a number of different reasons through the films of like Schwarzenegger and Stallone. But this was a movie that lacked a Schwarzenegger and Stallone. It didn't act have that big name attached to it in any regard. So a lot of it was going to be on the marketing and on if audiences were going to be down with the with the central plot idea. And I think, honestly, that's that. It's time to get into this movie. Let's talk about the movie. Head out to the coast. Have a few laughs. Yeah, I gotta. Let's do it. I just thought I'd love to hear that sound. All of you relax. This is a matter of inconvenient timing. That's all. Police action was inevitable. And as it happens, necessary. So let them fumble about outside and stay calm. This is simply the beginning. I thought I told all of you I want radio silence until further... I'm very sorry, Hans. I didn't get that message. Maybe you should have put it on the bulletin board. Wax Tony and Marco and his friend here, I figured you and Carl and Franco might be a little lonely, so I wanted to give you a call. How does he know so much about this? This is very kind of you. I assume you are our mysterious party crasher. You are most troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? Oh, these are very bad for you. Who are you, then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. The pain in the ass. Whoa. Check on all the others. Don't use the radio. See if he's lying about Marco and find out if anyone else is missing. Mr. Mystery Guest. Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee ki motherfucker. <sighs> Man. Die Hard. First one. <laughs> it's, uh... Very few movies, I think, to me, personally, really define just, like, what a perfect 80s motion picture can be, other than this. 
this is this is what I mean. I, I, I feel like talking about this is going to be similar to me talking about like like something like Wrath of Khan, where I'm just mm-hmm. like, this is just one of my favorite movies ever. And I just think it's just it, in so many ways, it's like so perfect that I feel like I'm going to really I'm like afraid I'm almost going to miss something I love about the movie because there's so many little bits, so many little moments, lines, plants and payoffs, performances, action beats that that really just encapsulated like this is kind of what is fun about like action cinema. This is like the ultimate in that respect. Um, and it's a movie that I love so much and I could watch at any time, especially around Christmas, but any time of the year. Uh, I, I, you know, I think we've talked about like there are movies that like we don't really need the rewatch for the podcast because they're so important and familiar to us or we've seen a number of times. But obviously you kind of want to watch it be because you, you want to remind yourself. You don't want to make sure you don't miss anything even of a movie you really love. And when, when I was rewatching this, I really just felt like, man, this movie is just something else. It, it, it really is this. And especially looking more into the production and the history of the movie, it really is like sort of like a bunch of elements almost luckily came together to make this movie what it is. And I really love watching this movie. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good movie. It's pretty. I give it. I give it a thumbs up. Two of them. Yeah. No, it's, well, I mean, you, it, you. I wanted to kind of pivot back to something that you said um, just a minute ago and actually uh, pertains to the whole rewatching it. Cause I was very happy to rewatch it. Cause it, it has been because it's that movie that, you know, you don't really need to rewatch again. At least I don't revisit it that much. So I was happy to take another like fresh pair of eyes on it. Cause I haven't sat down and watched the whole thing in like a long time, but when you said like there's so much you want to talk about and you don't want to miss anything mm-hmm. that was my biggest takeaway from this like time watching it like there's a lot of movie in this movie yeah and i think that what you, you always hear that die hard is a perfect movie and i mean there's a pretty good case for that and part of the reason being is like i mean it, it almost feels like an epic in some ways because it it's uh you know it, it's a got a good running time but it never feels slow mm-hmm. uh and it, it, it just uses up every single second to like of storytelling and character stuff and there's like 10 different relationships going on each of them are all fully fleshed out have like some sort of little payoff um but that was my biggest takeaway is like there's a lot of movie in this movie yeah, hundred percent. And I, and, then, I get, and then sometimes like and then you kind of forget some of the pacing of it because then you're like an hour, what feels like maybe forty five minutes, half hour into the movie, and we're like just introducing like new characters who will continue to get proper development plans and payoffs anyway. So it's like it's it's a pretty remarkable movie. Yeah, and and it really is. I think the characters, especially in this first one, that really make it the fun movie it is. And I think that like, I love our villain crew. I love sort of the, the angle that they take on it. I think that especially Rickman as Gruber is, is phenomenal. And, and just sort of that angle of the, of the thieves posing as terrorists and, and a lot of the fun that comes from that. Obviously you have like early career Willis who just has that sort of aura about him already that he's just like, he, you could tell he's going to be a star from this. 
I, I, but even the smaller characters, like I've always, I mean, I, I mentioned it in, in, in our, in our preamble. I always love that this, how slimy the Alice character is. Oh God. I, I love, um, I love just how much of an idiot, like the, the police chief and, and the FBI agents are. Um, I've always, yeah, I've always had such a soft spot for the Johnson and Johnson FBI characters. Like I've always really loved that concept of just like how much like into themselves they are. Well, and that's another thing too. Like you kind of forget, and then you rewatch it. But it is also kind of a silly movie. It is, well. and I, and yeah. It, like and there, think... there is a silly quality to like how some of it goes down. And 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 that's one of those things where I, I love sort of that touch that McTiernan like brings it to, to as a director. And I think that uh, if you look at a lot of his like earlier stuff, like even like there's that sort of that there's there's that silly element that he brings to this. He he really emphasizes it, especially in the first half of Predator. Um, and even in Hunt for Red October, like there's a lot of sort of that silliness that he brings out to the forefront that like really makes it an enjoyable watch of a movie, even in its most dramatic parts. There's a lot of that kind of silliness. Like this is a movie that's so quotable in so many different ways. Like every character in this movie has at least one line that you can like that, you know, because it's just so well-written. And I think McTiernan's directing style alongside Jan DeBond cinematography, which I've always also really loved in this movie really kind of helps to emphasize those moments even more. Not even like quotable line. Cause there's so many, right. Of like just lines that you remember, but then there's just like also line reads that like, you don't necessarily remember, but it just leads into like the silly kind of action movie. Like, it's funny because there's things in line readings and moments in this movie that make it feel like if any other movie was doing it, it's like making fun of action movies. Yeah. But it's just done so earnestly and everybody's just having so much fun. Like, so like, you know, Al, he's like, there's a, he's like, what's going on out there? And then he's like, they got the, the negotiating with terrorist book and they're playing it or like beat that, by yeah, beat, beat. yeah. <laughs> like, it's just so like there's like sh a lot of shit like that in the movie that's so much fun yeah um, oh oh yeah As so many like every one of the like quote-unquote terrorists gets a little moment um you know like the cops get their moment the 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 dumb news people get their moments there's some really weird like fun little satire moments when they're talking with the news team, like even that stuff. It's just, there's a lot going on. And I think what really, it's sort of like a miracle in some respects that it, it all functions together as something as kind of genius as this, because it really is just a fun movie to watch. And I think it really kind of, it, it really itches that sort of just, if you want like a, just a perfectly fun action movie with just well written again plants and payoffs all over the place that's why i've always appreciated like even from the first moment of this movie the very 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 first moment of this movie when there we we cut to um mclean on the plane with his with his riding partner on the plane and the riding partner's telling him like oh like the whole situation of like hey man you you don't fly often here's a tip for you when every location find a rug like you know, curl your toes up in the ball. It like, trust me, it's better than coffee. I, it's just that works on so many different levels, right? Because on one hand, it's sort of introducing this McLean character. He's uncomfortable in the situation he's in. You know, we, we get to learn he's a cop. He has a giant teddy bear. He's out there for whatever reason. 
you know, he's kind of has that sort of ed- soft edge to him, but he's also like, kind of like, Hey, I've, I can be a little jokey with you. I've been a cop for 11 years. I know what I'm doing. And, but at the very same time, it functions as this amazing plant for this payoff of like why he has to be shoeless for the entire movie and, and the drama that that adds as he like gets like glass in his feet and stuff. It, it's just, it just works on so many different layers as it introduces this movie to you. I like just like just moments like that. It just really makes it work. Yeah, it's, um, no, I agree. I agree. And I think it, it, pivoting off of that scene, like the opening scene with John, Bruce Willis is really good in this movie. He is. Like, he, he's really good. And I think that was the other thing I really took more notice of this time. Like, really just, like, sitting with, you know, and paying attention to other things I hadn't normally paid attention to. Uh, because I'm not, like, an aficionado of Die Hard. Like, you know, I'm not a Die Hard, Die Hard person (laughs) but yeah you know obviously like i love the movie but you know just kind of soaking a lot of stuff in and just that stuff in the uh in the plane but then even more so in the limo drive right right after that like the way that bruce willis plays it like you know you can you like him but you're you're like you're not you're not you're what's the way to put it like you like him but he also just comes across as that guy who is not necessarily an asshole but you understand why he's in this situation with his wife you, yeah you, you under- sympathize yeah. with the wife which yes. is really what's good that's no what I, I i 100% agree i think that's what especially going forward it'll be what's interesting about the the john mcclane character is that that's sort of an angle that they definitely do take going forward with the character, um, especially once we kind of get more with his kids and, and more with sort of the other the people that he functions with in his his normal life. But in this movie, particularly, it, it really works because I think, yeah, you're 100 percent right. You give the sense of like he is a likable dude. And he is a good person in there. And obviously he's the person he's, he's going to be. He's going to be a good cop to an extent. And he's going to be a good person and he's going to try, you know, he tries to save Alice's life. Like he tries to do that, but you, you very much see why he's going to be so off putting and like why he's going to have this like fractured relationship with his wife and eventually his kids as we get further into the franchise. Um, like he's definitely a guy who really he can make a joke where he's he's like you know, hey hey you're you're a policeman. There's rules for policemen. Like, yeah, that's what my captain keeps telling me. Like you can kind of see it's like well, <laughs> obviously that like it's obviously like a very different line in this modern era. But what I think what's interesting about the line is like you can tell you can you can easily see him actually being that type of cop, and you can also see him being like that's the type of thing he would joke about because he's he's kind of likable and he has like a wit to him as well. Well, but it's good storytelling too, because, mm-hmm. like, take that line for instance about like the um, the rules for police officers. That's that whole line. It's like good because they they the way in which they weave in backstory. Yeah, is it like through like little comments like that? Because already that line is like its own other John McClane movie just, mm-hmm. just based off that. But what was kind of good about that? It's like interesting because you kind of get the sense that it's less about like, you know, him necessarily doing something bad, but it's just like, 
when you when you look at like how he like kind of soft MacGyver's his way through the movie, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, this is the guy who's like, you know what? Oh my god, I'm gonna use the explosives, you know, against uh, everybody, like things like that. Like he's like he's a loose cannon. That's what John McClane is. Like the whole like him not following the rules is more like, oh, he's a loose cannon. So I, I and I so I just think it all kind of pieces together in a good way like that. Yeah. Oh, and and. Yeah, and and I think that's that's a movie even immediately like one of those movies that's really good at getting that exposition out to you between like you know the conversation that uh you know McLean has with Argyle in the limo, uh you know Holly talking to uh you know Ellis right at the beginning of the movie when we kind of start getting introduced to the uh, the Nakatomi Plaza office workers. Um, like we get to see the person that, you know, Holly is like, she's, she's like a very good person. Like, you know, her pregnant assistant, like, Hey, like stop working. Like, I feel like I've, you know, stuff like that. Like you ought to really get these characters, even when we're introduced to Hans Gruber and sort of how their conversations go. Like, even when we get that first scene with Hans Gruber, you know, basically revealing their true intentions to, to, you know, you know, uh, the boss is, uh, uh, Takagi like you, you just already get the sense of like every who each character is almost immediately from mm-hmm. their like you know early introduction scenes and I think that that's a, a sign of, of good character work because you allow those characters to really showcase themselves early and that allows for the arcs and their journeys to happen throughout the entire film yeah yeah like no, I, I, yeah I agree yeah and I think I, I, talking about like again the, even the relationships as you mentioned I also really like how this movie paints that the McLean relationship because mm-hmm. I think you have the scenes where they're both hopeful you know early on right like he has the bear he's like coming in you know he's been invited to this he does love his wife he wants to get in you know we have the scene with Holly calling the house to be like hey have the spare bed you know you know, up has he called yet? Like they both love and are hopeful for each other. But then as soon as they kind of actually meet up, you immediately get that argument about her changing his, her last name. And I think that that's really sort of that dynamic of like, it feels like a really real relationship, right? Like these people that love each other, but they just have these two, you know, hard personalities that are like, they are going to just have these kind of arguments with each other. Mm-hmm. And then sort of that whole arc leads up to, you know, his big speech towards the end where like he says, like, you know, I've always told her I loved her, but she's never heard me say I'm sorry. And that sort of reflection can happen because you have this sort of dynamic um, start to this relationship. And, and it is very real and thought out um, start to these characters. And I think what's good about it, too, because. You can tell when the way that they build the relationship <clears throat> or the way they showcase it is like everybody's trying to put their best foot forward and they yeah. kind of illustrate that like the wife, uh, you know, wants it to work out, but also, you know, slams the picture down like, you know, so it's complicated. It's a little messy. Uh, and then John, like, you know, John McClane's just John McClane. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. they they clearly illustrate that everybody is like kind of trying to do the the best thing and then also what i think the movie does well too is like it because it thoroughly uh explores all that or i should say um puts that on the screen yeah you don't get the sense that the end of the movie is like 
like the him getting back together is like the John McClane's prize by the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because it could easily be just like, oh, it's like, you know, they're together and really now John McClane has saved a day. So you know what he should get? His wife back. What they do is that they start planting that, okay, well, these two are, this is like a journey that's going to bring these two together mutually because they were mutually already in that headspace to begin with. Yeah. So, and then it just makes it more rewarding at the end of the day because you're like, mm-hmm. yes, they did get back together. Yeah. These two people who wanted to be together anyway ended up back together. Yeah, at least in this movie. But yeah. uh, I guess we'll talk, <laughs> we'll talk about it. Uh, but even like, I, I like, like we're going back to like, right, like how, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to be said even just about that that limo conversation that Willis um, has er, with with McLean has with Argyle, which is another fun. Ar- I love Argyle in this movie. He's mm-hmm. he's such a fun dynamic, especially in that first scene and the fact that like he gets to stick around. Um, and have his little moments. And obviously he also doesn't get to really interact with anybody like throughout the rest of the film, but like even him sort of being, uh, you know, just sort of be talkative, chatty and, and you know, offering him like, Hey man, if it, if it works out, I'm going to get, if it works out, Hey, just let me know. I'll get you over there. If you, uh, if you, if it doesn't work out, I'll find you a hotel. Hey, just remember that one. When you write down the tip, like this stuff like that, like there's just a little fun dynamic, but you also get to see how, you know, you know, good that of a person that McLean is just having this kind of conversation. And again, that, 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 that distinct Willis sort of low energy charm that he will, you know, for better, for worse, he'll have his entire career. Mm-hmm. It just works so brilliantly, especially in this early part of the movie, especially because it allows you to actually ramp up, you know, sort of when he gets to be more of the action hero and, and like his, his, when he gets to go more like 60 miles an hour, because here, one of the things that he does really well at the beginning of this movie is sort of showcase his uncomfortability, right? Like he's sort of the everyman New Yorker coming into this, this high, you know, highly elite, like, you know, California lifestyle of like these people in this, in this very rich building, this very like nice building with this computer system where everybody is sort of like, you know, they're, they're all very successful, like kind of a lot more money, but also they're they're Californians, right? Like what's like the fucking Californians line that he has when he's like at the party is like very nice and very but, stuff. And, it, it, you know, it's getting ahead of ourselves, but it did make me because I've seen all the movies now. And I think it's something that the movies kind of really right after this, but more as they go along, like get away from like where, you know, John McClane is kind of like a snarky asshole. Like he's not yeah. necessarily likable. He's like, cool. But like he like he's very aggressively rude a lot of the time <laughs> to, pe- to people in the upcoming or in the upcoming movies. Here, you do get that everyman quality where you know he's gonna roll his eyes and obviously like that whole uh, you know the attitude comes out later. But it's also they paint a guy where he's like an everyman like Argyle. Clearly, he's uncomfortable with like Argyle getting into his space and asking him all his questions. But you could tell that John is a character who. You know, at the end of the day, like, uh, you, you know, it's like, oh, this guy's being up front, just trying to be like a nice guy. And then he eventually like opens up to him. So it's just kind of interesting that I think the movies eventually get away from that personality type where he's just kind of like a uh, the everyman, I mm. think. Yeah, I can see that. And it'll be interesting to kind of track that as as the movies go on as well. Um, just as we get to the, you know, bigger and bigger situations for McLean as he starts like kind of taking on whole cities and whole countries, right? Like as he starts traveling about. Um, 
Yeah. And you also know who I really like this time around is um, who plays his wife. Yeah. And remind me the actress's name. Uh, yeah, because it's uh, it's um, cast. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah, yeah. I I was um, this was like the first time I really really paid attention to like her and her performance, and I thought I I really I really liked her. You know, just a very smart, capable character. Mm-hmm. Um, and is just able to like, especially in that scene when she's like. The biggest strength for me was like when she's like walking, doing like that one or away from Ellis and then she like sits down and she's like her mind, like what she's responding to and then what she isn't responding to. I just like how all that's written and how all of it's performed. And then she sits down and then like pivots emotionally to talking to the kids, but then also is able to very tastefully uh, deliver that, you know, the 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 pain of the relationship and all like the drama with that, like and how she talks about John over the phone. And then how she requests, like, oh, maybe get a spare bed ready. Um, yeah, I just thought she was great. Yeah, and I think that's, it, I think, again, it's a really nice mixture of sort of that, there's that vulnerability of, like, you know, he's, she wants to get better to, you know, back with John, and he wants to, you know, and again, they have those arguments. But I think, especially as the movie goes on, she kind of has to take that leadership role among the hostages, and, like, her coming up to the Hans and being like, hey, you need, we need this pregnant woman in a bed. We need to, you know, start going to the bathroom. And uh, and even, like, when she starts talking back to Han when he figures out, like, she's, you know, McLean's wife. Like, she plays all that super incredibly well and, and really sort of presents herself as a great, like, you know, like a, a high working female in sort of, like, why her career would get to that point, right, where they kind of have to be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, another part of this whole introductory period that uh, a scene that I kind of I, I know about, but I I kind of really took in this time. I kind of forgot about was uh when he makes it up to the party after the like he's kind of like figuring out. He meets Mister Takagi and he's like, "Hey, you must be John McClane." And I, 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 there's also kind of a nice beat where it's like it's really Takagi who's kind of taking all this for like the the effort to like give. Like McLean, the the infant is the party and the limo and everything. It's like the least we could do for you because you're you know your wife's great at this company. Uh, and they go into the office, and I love this little beat now where we get into the office and it's Alice doing coke in the office. Right, right. And he's like, oh, like oh, I was just I had a call and I, this was the closest phone and and I just like the, the beat I like is like McLean just comes up to me is like, you missed a spot. where it's like it says again it speaks to mclean where like he's not the type of cop where it's like yeah i'm gonna take you down right now for doing coke right like but he's just like you know what like oh yeah yeah i I can tell the type of asshole you are and then like listen like hey and that's the kind of snark that mclean is too like you know he's not he what i like about mclean is like he's not looking to start trouble Mm-hmm. Like and then and, and the movies do kind of continue this, but like that's what I love about his character and how Bruce plays it in this. He's just so put upon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like throughout the entire movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if anything, this is the movie where he should be saying I was supposed to be on vacation. Yeah. In this movie, he is supposed to be on vacation. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> that line, um, then I will never go away for us. So dumb. We'll talk about it. Uh, but we got to get through this good movie first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So yeah. And then and then Ellis is just uh, 
That's such a good slimy performance. Yeah, just, I just like love a slime ball. Ugh. Just a slime ball trying to get into Holly's pants, like trying to like really show himself. Like, yeah, I'm I'm the shit. You know, like I am I'm, I'm the shit that I I I I know I'm the best I can be. His like comp- he say like he's saying lines. He's like, I, it's like I get I get multi million deals done before breakfast. Like like he's he's constantly saying shit like that. And- yeah. He's like, I can. He's like, I can handle this Euro trash. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, oh, just like the confidence is just like, man, like he's gonna fuck. You know, McClay's gonna I, fuck oh, it up I, for and, the rest of us. And I know it's 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 way ahead, but like, just like, just Rickman's reaction to him, yes. like how Hans reacts to, like he's just so confused. Like, remember. Remember how I remember why I like that scene in Guardians of the Galaxy, the dance off scene, and why yes. I like Ronan's reaction. And then for for in that in Guardians of the Galaxy, when Star Lord starts doing the dance off, like Ronan's reaction is just pure confusion. And I know a lot of people say like, "Well, that's kind of dumb. Why would he react to that?" But I always think of that scene as like, you have to understand, this is the bad guys. Like, this is the best day of his life, and he's he's like not only like ready to do it, but he he has he's a uh, He's like almost religiously, like you know, he attached to this, like um, revenge that he's about to exact. And then here's this guy <laughs> who just starts dancing, and he's so confused. Well, so there's a little bit of Hans in there where, th- like, he's just trying to pull off the heist of the century. The those the people outside are barely even on his mind. Not even part of the plan until the end of the plan. And then meanwhile, here comes this guy talking about, hey, Hans, Booby, I can be your white knight. And Han looks at him like, what's happening? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. What he's like, he's like, I'm, is there a 60 minutes that I miss? What are you talking about? Oh, man. Like, yeah, it's so just good. so funny. And like, he's so just good. It's a character you love to hate, and I even like, but even the fact that like even by the end, John's like, "Listen, dude, I don't want you to die." Like, is is a great little bit too. But just man, like I just always have loved the Hans Booby, I'm your white knight line, and just like how much of this guy is just like the ultimate like sleazy dude, like in in a high corporate environment. Always loved it. Um, speaking of Rickman here, he is like obviously he's made a career out of this type of that charisma that he has in so many different ways. I, 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 I always like one of the reasons actually I've been thinking about revisiting that Kevin Costner, um, Robin hood movie specifically, like I, cause I always hear people talk about just how, how big Rickman is in that movie. Mm-hmm. And, but, but like revisiting him here, like, especially for him not doing really much film prior to this, like what, a funny performance for like a character that is essentially the villain that, you know, and and that's another thing that you're absolutely right about it. Like I always remember him just being like cool Rickman, but he does play it with like, like humor. Like he's just like, he's so it's very offbeat in a way. Like it's not like, whereas like pretty much the rest of the gang feels like as good as they are, they do feel like stock, like action movie archetypes like rickman's operating on a whole nother level like he's mustache twirling but not too much he's threatening but not like you know um not overbearing with it not like a dark character uh you know there's some swagger but there's no gimmick like he and and he just makes it work and 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 it's just like he alongside like obviously like mclean has a lot of the 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 funny you know like the good one action line uh, 
action one-liners. But I think it's like Rickman, what really makes his performance and the character of Hans Gruber so memorable is that the fact that even Hans has a lot of really just funny little comedic asides. Like the one I always think about is when like he finally gets on the phone to the like the radio to the police and he has all these just like nonsense like um like demands in terms of like who to release um like like people that are around the world that are in prison that are released and he's like you got to release this like this Canadian group and, and and the five people of Asian Dawn and then one of it, like one of the other guys like Asian Dawn I read about them in Time magazine <laughs> like it is the fact that like and I I think there's even the stuff where it's like I love like the the reason I love the Hans Gruber character and why he's such a fun villain is like the first time you really see him, right, he's presenting himself as like, I'm this highly ideological, like, we're going to show you what real power is now. And like, I'm looking for Mr. Takaki and like, he's listing all his accomplishments and he seems like he's really high and mighty. I'm just like, like, I am like, you know, this terrorist that's like going to, you know, have great demands and he looks really cool and he's like in a nice jacket and everything. He puts himself in a suit. And then immediately when he finally gets to Takagi and is like literally just asking him for the code, like it, 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 the, that demeanor just drops. And he's just like, yeah, like the, the benefits of a classical education. And like, listen, like, I, I really don't care about like your project in Indonesia. I really don't care about any of this. Like what I need are these codes for this vault. Like just the demeanor drops, right? Um, and whenever he gets the chance to do that, it's just it's so much fun with that character and another really impressive thing rickman does is like he keeps his composure the entire movie while still having enough nuance in the performance to follow along with the events going on Mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is like you would think like there's really not like the big villain like ah damn you mcclain like you know it's like there's not like the big like this is all falling apart like you know there's some smaller moments like that but for the most part he's a cool cat the entire time like yeah i love and then also nobody says detonators quite like yeah hans gruber where where are the detonators detonators Uh, um well because i think what's also that my detonators that's that what a ford is like the other you know people in the movie like the 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 henchman who has his brother killed it's like that's the guy who like gets to be frustrated and yeah. i think what's really nice oh about- sorry i i before before i forget if we're talking about rickman lines and in that composure nothing also beats now i have a machine gun <laughs> ho 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 <laughs> he, just, he just reads it <laughs> yeah Oh, like, uh, uh, there's just so many, like, I could just go over all my favorite Rickman lines. Like, uh, another one, like, wait, like, I, I, this is a movie where I'm just going to jump everywhere because I just love this movie so much. But another one, and, uh, one of my all-time favorite lines in the movie, one that I always really enjoy, is when when he takes Holly and they're, like, you know, taking all the stuff out of the vault. And, like, even she realizes, like, oh, after all your speeches, after all your, after all you've ever done, you're nothing more than a, than a common thief. And he's just like, I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. And now that I'm moving up the kidnapping, you should be a little more nice. <laughs> like, I know it's not the exact line. No, um, but it, it, he does. Like, yeah. He, yeah. And like, even just like that moment when he like finally figures it out and he takes out the gun and he's like, it's like, it's like a pleasure to meet you, Mrs. McLean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, oh, so good. Oh man. Um, it, it's just like, it's just so many things. So I, and I like, his dynamic with with the with his other henchmen right like there's 
you know, the kind of the, the guy who like wants to really kill McClane. He's like, listen, man, like I need you to like, just calm down. Once the FBI gets here, we're going to be fine. That's, you know, whatever. And then, but there's also like, you know, Theo with his, with his stuff, like the guy who's the security guy. There's that one dude uh, that, that like when the police are coming at one dude, like he like steals all the candy. Like, I love that guy too. It's just like, you're, you're right. Like they're all get their moments. They're not like the most fleshed out. They are a little bit more of the stock. Like, Hey, we're, we're, we're thieves. But like, I think Rickman is able to elevate all of them just by his presence. And the fact that they all seem very, you know, interesting in that respect. I really, I've always really liked that. Um, God, I'm just thinking of more Rickman lines too. Um, just like, just like that. Oh, oh, how about this? You ask for a miracle. I give you the F. B-I. I love that <laughs> one so good. Um, like him talking about like right at the end, when I, just another exchange. I love also the dynamic between Hans and McLean too, even when they know each other and they don't know each other. Obviously like that very, the, the big scene with the iconic Yippie Kaye motherfucker, like that whole scene where he's like, listen, like I, uh, yeah, you know, another American pretending that they watch too many movies, pretending to be John, John Wayne, Gary Cooper, like Rambo. More like a yippie Kaye motherfucker. (laughs) Well, that, that whole, that whole bit too, I was going to mention because at the end movie, it was just like, uh, looks like, it looks like John Wayne's not going to go off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. (laughs) And John McClane's like, that was that was Gary Cooper, you asshole. He's like, he's like whatever. Like, and, then whatever. Res- and then he responds to that, enough jokes. <laughs> like, Hans, I don't think that was a joke. I think he's just being an asshole. Also, another great, like, this is where it just, it's so much fun. And I know it's the end, but since we're on that scene, because it happens right there. It's just when John comes out, just like, just the world has, just, the day has just shat on this guy. And he comes out with his gun. He's like, <laughs> I, and I like the running gag too because I'm again I'm thinking about that scene. I like that once everybody figure out that it's just for money, like it's right, just a robbery. Right. Everyone's like, "What the fuck, dude!" Yeah. Like, and now I think he's all beat up, and he's like, "I gotta this? say, this is a thing I loved about watching and just about this movie in general. It pretty much plays all of its cards. Like, there's not really like there, the details, I guess, are revealed, but." You're kind of like aware that the villains have like an alternative agenda, mm-hmm. like, and that they want certain things to happen and they don't mind. Like, so they kind of play that all out. All the relationships are like kind of clear, like I said, about like uh, McLean and his wife and like where they stand. So it was just refreshing that, you know, the movie, I'm just so sick of twists and like the movie, like what you're waiting for the shoe to drop of what it is. And I would say for the most part, this is like, it's all pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I just, I think also it's one of those movies that really, it, it's just smart about what it does, right? Because mm-hmm. it lays its cards on the table. There's still like a little bit of mystery of like, why does Hans need the detonators, right? Because at one point McLean's like, well, I've already used all your explosives. So like, or have I, right? Like there's, there is a little bit of like what their actual plan is. But, but again, what's really smart about it is I like that the way that Hans and his crew operates is like they are ahead of step of everybody except McLean. Like they are, right? They're, they're playing into the terrorist playbook, right? They're expecting, he's expecting the power to be cut. He's expecting, you know, the cops to come in and then they're going to do this thing. And then like there, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. 
that, you know, maybe like in his plan, the police were called a little bit too early, but hey, he's going to run with it because they need him. They need them anyway. And I think the movie is just super smart about how it plays Hans's plan to make them even more formidable foes because you know that these guys and Hans in particular are ahead of a, a step ahead. And it's like McLean is like the one part of that plan that wasn't planned out. But even right. like, again, like a little, little bits, right? Like I've said, I've mentioned the, the feet thing and how that adds to the tension. Um, there's the plant with Holly's watch that pays off at the end of the movie that I've always really liked. Um, they, they do really just smart little things where like, okay, John McClane notices this poster of like this naked woman in one locker. And he knows that like he uses it as like a, okay, like a point on a map to know like where he is in the building, like how they use the construction zone stuff. And the fact that the building is under construction and playing into that, like a lot of that is just, like, it just it presents everything super smartly. And it, it allows it, the movie to kind of have these super fun moments where you get these plans and payoffs and how everything kind of actually functions together. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's all really good. And, and, and you're invested in it all. Yeah. Um, and then, so like, I guess like the other biggest piece of the puzzle is, um, outside everything going on. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously like McLean kind of gets starts, gets the jump on some of the hench, uh, the henchmen and starts kind of doing the taunting. Uh, I have a, um, you know, I have machine gun, ho, ho, ho. And like, he, he knows to have fun, which again, I also like about the McLean character. Like he, he, he is the person that's like, okay, I'm going to send a message to these guys um, right, by, by right, sending yeah. this dead body downstairs. And like, I have your machine gun now and, and like putting them off edge, but everything else happening outside and eventually. And also not only that, but again, to illustrate, if you did not understand like what type of a guy John McClane is and why, you know, he's, he apparently has like a list of <clears throat> assholes who he wants to throw away in jail. So he's like on their track on their case back home and the whole like <clears throat> line about like, Oh, like pol police and rules and whatever. He resorts to basically just traversing an elevator shaft pretty quickly. Yes. Like, like, it wasn't like, that wasn't like a circumstance that he ended up in. He was like, all right, so this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And also, <laughs> like, this guy is crazy. I, I, what I also, just, just uh, I got on another just sort of like tangent note, when I was watching that elevator scene, I was just like, man, like, in a couple of years time, Jan DeBont's going to really use this experience of shooting in an elevator shaft, like to great effect for the opening of Speed. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. you know mm -hmm. that's a, that's a that's just reminded me of how that sequence goes. Um, but I also like because again, I, I just present like John in this movie is a very smart person, right? Like he when he gets on the radio, he starts writing down everybody's names, and so he kind of like has this idea of like, okay, who's who? To some extent, I haven't really seen everybody, but I know that there's this many people, and I've killed off this many people, right? I think there's that fun stuff. I also. It's just it's just a really funny too. again, sort of the satrical element of like how competent McLean is because he's inside the building and how extremely like incompetent everybody else outside the building is like even the first moment when he's like he pulls the fire alarm right and they, they're able to like get that off and he's, and he's like, you know, hey, you know, they, they're able to like call the fire department. Hey, like, you know, that's just a false alarm. And then when when he gets on the phone to like the police emergency channel. And just like the woman is just like, listen, man, like this is a line for emergencies only. And like you, you, ha you have you have if you have an emergency like this, you, you know, this has got to be open. It's like 
Yeah, what's it sound like? I'm ordering a fucking pizza. Yeah. <laughs> and just how exact at that point, how exasperated he is. And even then, it's like, you got to get off this channel and call my one. He's like, fine, like, come arrest me. Just come down to this building. Like, please, I need you over here. Um, which is just fun. And then we get to the uh, the uh, his his buddy on the phone for, for a good portion of the movie. Uh, Reginald Vell Johnson uh, as our friend Al, the police officer, um, who, again, gets a nice introduction scene because, like, it's obvious, like, he's not really a cop that's, like, on the streets a lot. Like, he's out there this thing, like, picking up donuts for, you know, whatever reason. And, you know, like, for we talk about his family and everything like that. And then, like, he gets this call where it's like, well, you have to, okay, go ahead, just check this out. Because uh, they do hear gunfire on the. I, sorry, I gotta go back. I always love too that like there's the gunfire, like once uh you know John McClane's on the on the radio with this like the 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 police channel channel nine or whatever and the gunfire and then like it cuts back to the the woman on the radio and she just like takes it out of here she's like ah like and like they're not even reacting like, is that gunfire she's like god oh, god damn it that was so loud like I love that little but bit. but then also good because then it's enough to incentivize like well yeah. send a send a squad car over there or something yeah like, something's yeah, going like yeah. something's happening right yeah, and, might as and, well yeah yeah. Yeah, for sure. Also, uh, j- just thinking of uh, Reginald Val Johnson, I was like, uh, I w- I've been rewatching a lot of Key and Peele. I remember like the Urkel one. Yeah. Where like he comes in to the thing. And I always remember, I was in Die Hard, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they, yeah, they, um, you know, they set up the stakes with him. Of course, like, you know, he's like the cop with a wife with a kid on the way and um and then we obviously eventually learn his backstory right he's normally like because they, they get eventually him and I, again just a fun the talk when they talk to each other right like these these guys when when mclean and, and al are talking to each other right it's these guys who've never seen each other never met but they they're, they're on the same page and they they kind of get what's what what the deal is here and and it, they become friends and th- there's that moment at the end when they finally do meet and they know exactly who the other person is. And it's just like a nice moment. But yeah, we do find out that his whole story is that like he made, made a, he made a mistake shooting somebody on the force. And so he's been kind of a desk jockey type for, for a number of years now. And, you know, when he was younger, he was very eager to be on the force, but now he has like this wife and the, you know, this, uh, this kid on the way and, and sort of like that he's afraid of making that mistake again, which is, mm. you know, very notable, but the, the whole sequence with him where it's like McLean's trying to figure out how he can contact him and say like, Hey, there's something going on. Obviously again, our terrorists have like a, a plant in the lobby to be like, Hey, yeah, go ahead and investigate. And they're prepared to kill him if necessary. Right. But like, Hey, like, Hey, he's like investigating. He's going to go up. Never mind. Like it's, it's nothing, um, you know, pretending to be like watching a football game and everything like that. So, uh, and eventually he he drops the body on the, the 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 car, and that's another great little bit where it's like, oh god, it comes to the car. He's he's like, oh god damn it, Jesus Christ! Yeah. <laughs> and they're dropping bodies on me. I gotta I need backup now. You're right. It, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, and then like again, like I just there every character's dynamic in this is so fun. Like when Hans and McLean get to talk to each other, it's the best when when al and mclean get to talk to each other it's it's the best like they 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 really allow these characters to really breathe um in this thing uh in this movie as well and 
And it's all, like I said, spaced out pretty well. Like, this isn't, like, stuff that happens right after another. Like, right, yeah. Like, the introduction of Al, like, there, there's a good amount of time, uh, you know, until he comes about. And it's even longer until, I believe, because he hasn't started talking to Hans yet at that point. I think that's after he get, uh, Al gets introduced. No, I think it's just before. Is it just before? No, okay. no, no. Yeah, no, no. Because he's like, this is a party line. So he knows that everybody is like kind of right. talking to him and everything like that. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, But yeah. So I just think, again, just extraordinarily well paced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, I just was thinking of another McLean line from that around that era too. Like when he pulls the fire alarm. Like again, this is sort of the smartness of McLean where he's like, He's kind of like slightly panicking because he's a sod cocky get killed. And he's like, why didn't you like get in there and do something? Cause you then be, you'd be too dead too asshole. Like, this is like, <laughs> this, like trying to figure out like what to do. And I think like, that's what's kind of fun about seeing McLean in the situation, as well as the fact that like, man, like McLean throughout the movie just gets more and more just beat up and like explosions and glass in the feet. And like, by the end, like, when I was watching by the end, right, with all the blood and, and gunk on him, I was like, man, like, whatever shower he's taking after this has got to be the greatest shower of all time. Just getting all that nonsense off of you is is really, really nice. Again, the day just shat all over him. Yeah. And, yeah. And then it, and it's funny because even eventually you do get a little bit of that unhinged McLean. Yes. <laughs> like, you can tell, like, he's got, he's got, like, a, a shade of crazy going oh, on. Uh, the, but the, you the, kind of get it. Like, you the, understand. The laughter at the end? Yeah. <laughs> when, when after the yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. Right, Hans right. Says it, oh, and they're just laughing, and it was just the reveal that he has the gun behind him, too. At, that's all great. Um, God, like, I just, again, like, McLean, obviously we've talked about the famous, like, come to the coast, have a few laughs. Yeah, yeah. Which is also, I always forget it's followed up. It's like, now I know what it feels like to be a TV dinner, which is like, <laughs> which is a very McLean line, but also one of like one of the one of the few like sort of like not really iconic, iconic ones. Um, but there's also the line where the terrorist is like, next time you have a chance to kill somebody, do it. And he's like, thanks for the advice, asshole, and he kills him. Um, another classic uh, is a, a, a great line read. Absolutely, one of Willis's best line readers in the movie is after he drops the body on Al's car, and he's like, "Welcome to the party, pal." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just good stuff. But I, again, like, I just love. I, I always got to go back to how smart this movie is because I think like the the they give McLean the good amount of obstacles and like really ramp up those obstacles as the movie goes on because at first he's able to hide his identity. Then Ellis kind of blows that cover and, and showcases it to everybody, you know, John McLean of the New York Police Department. And it's like, hey, like what, Mr. McLean? Uh, my, my, my third grade teacher called me Mr. McLean. You, my friends call me John. You're neither asshole. Like that sort of stuff. I, again, I'm more and more falling in love with Die Hard, Die Hard if I just look at it strictly as like life shitting on john mcclain like yeah. I, just, I just love that it's, it's for some reason it connects with me like this is the worst day of this guy's life and he all he wanted to do was try to patch things up with the this, misses yes and then, yeah. like no no life ain't that easy john and it'll, it'll continue to be up and down for him as these as these movies go on um the there's the other elements of the stuff outside we talk about too we've talked about al a little bit we have our police chief uh, or deputy police chief uh, who 
it's just everybody is just an outside is an idiot but i also kind of love it like i, oh, I yeah. just i love just how like sort of like everybody's just like is this not on the page of like this john mccain guy like they send in people uh just like the little bits of like like the like oh they're shooting wildly and then else like they're going after the lights the lights like get cut off Oh my God! They they went after the lights. You gotta get yeah. them out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like Alice getting eye roll. Oh, and like this little moments too. Like I love, like again, like the Gleason. Again, he's also the principal in the Breakfast Club. He has like kind of this run of movies that he does, and I've always loved sort of this, the big bluster he has, but also like the fact that he'll he's able to kind of play like a little bit more to like the the type that like okay he has this big bluster he's able to boss Al around, but then like. Once the feds show up, he's like very like, yeah, no, no, no. We 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 think there's like 30 people up there. Like he's telling he's telling Al like, don't believe anything that guy says. No, we have about 30 hostages up there. I think we have like seven or eight terrorists or something like that. Um, there's this great little moment too where like the FBI shows up, right? And like the guy comes up to to the the deputy chief and he's like, the the, the FBI are here. He's like, the, the FBI are here now, like right now. He's like, yeah. And then Al just looks over and is like. You want a breath mint <laughs> like just, <laughs> just that, and then we get all the satire stuff too with the with the media, which I what I love. This is what I love about like a especially like I think this is a very McTiernan thing too, but it's just like sort of this sort of movie where it's like there's they have all these small little bits with the media that don't need to be there, but they're so entertaining in their own right. Like the whole little bit about the they cut to the broadcast of the guy with the book about terrorism, and it's like terrorist hostages hostages terrorists like just like a ra- random thing and then the news anchor trying to be like that is helsinki syndrome and everybody's like yeah sure <laughs> like whatever um and obviously like the the big thing with the with the roving reporter like being such a such a slimy bastard himself getting to the family threatening the 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 call the you know the the uh, the immigration board on on the housekeeper and everything like that like and really like messing things up, like just a, those little bits. Like you feel like they you don't need them there, like and it would be easily cut out of the movie. But I think they make the movie even feel more full, and it just really showcases like how everything on the outside is just like very much in its own reality, as opposed to what's happening in the building. And also Johnson and Johnson that that's their names, right? Is it or what is it? Is it no no relation? Yes, no relation. Yeah, they. <laughs> They're like almost from a completely different movie. I, I I said this earlier. I've always loved those two characters. No, I love I the mean, concept it's, of those it's two fun, characters. But it's almost like a completely different movie. Like that they That's just what are makes hopping it, from. Yeah, that like, makes, it, makes them so great because it's so silly. Like the way you know that the movie it couldn't you you have to just call it silly at times. Good, I like that, but it is silly when he calls up the like the guy he has up on the phone. It's like, oh, this is Johnson. No, the other one. And I'm like, why? Like, that's just, like, oh, man. I just love the thing. It's like, then the characters know. Like, you guys know this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I I just, like, just their introduction of just, like, I'm Agent Johnson. And I'm also Agent Johnson. No relation. And the fact that they're, like, so cool. But there's one line to me that, like, defines this character. It's like, that one no the other one like it's just a small little line but when they're in the helicopter and the one johnson's like it's like fucking saigon all over again and the other one's like i was in junior high dickhead <laughs> like just like <laughs> stuff like that it's just like it's just again little lines that you feel like could easily be cut don't need to be there but they fully make these characters 
Like even like Johnson and Johnson, they should be a one note joke, but just their like their suaveness. Like there's also another really great bit of McTiernan directing, which relates to a Johnson and Johnson joke, is when they finally open the vault, and like they have the whole thing where again, like you ask for miracle Theo, like at the FDI, because there's this big vault they have to get into, and once they don't get the code right, like they then he's just gonna drill into the 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 like seven layers of the vault but like the seventh layer is like so thick they can't drill into it and it's like a time lock and they need the code or they need like some miracle to get through it because like even theo a master of his of his of his craft can't do it and so finally rickman gruber reveals like the reason that they need the cops is they need to call in the fbi the reason they need to be terrorists is that the fbi is going to play into the terrorist playbook and cut the power off and that's another great little Johnson Johnson pick, not the one I was just talking about that I was teasing, but when they're talking to the power guy and he's just like, like, you know, I, I can cut the whole grid. I just need to call central. It's like, no, we can't cut the grid. It's Christmas Eve. That's ridiculous. It's like, listen, like I need to call. I need to call my boss. What about your boss is the U S fucking government. You don't do this. You lose your job. Right. And they, so they finally cut the power. The vault opens. And this is the bit of great McTiernan directing. I love sort of the, the, the Spielberg asks sort of like, like look of just, just awe as the, as the, the vault doors finally open, you have Rickman coming up into the light. And like, it, it, it feels like the, it feels like Indiana Jones just unlocked like this great secret, right? It's like what you would showcase in that. And it sort of even goes into the Susan's like writing Hans as a protagonist, but it feels like they've gotten their goal. They've seen this, this is massive vault light up and, and Ode to Joy is playing. And it's such a joyous moment. They're like going through all the bonds and they're seeing everything in the vault. And then you cut just down to Johnson and Johnson. They're like, I bet those guys are pissing their fucking pants right now. Like, they're so confident in everything they are, right? They, they're so confident. And, and even that little moment with them where they're like, yeah, you know, we'll probably get out of here with what, like 15, 20 hostages. Right, right. right yeah. And they're like, I can live with that. Like, they're just so in their way slimy. And I think that that works so much to to the effect of like what makes John McClane such the ultimate action hero. Right. Because he's the only one who like has any actual clue of what's happening here. And just to contrast it with everything on the ground, which also just adds to McLean's his journey, right? Like it, it adds to sort of the obstacles, right? Everybody is like not believing him or against him or going by sort of this, this by the book numbers. Like this is what we have to do because this is what the situation calls for. And McLean gets to be so much more creative and, and, and has to improvise so much of the time that that sort of nonsense at the end, of like what's going on outside only works to raise the status of McLean as an action hero. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, um, it's just all so good. Yeah. <laughs> it just all just works. It, it's, it's like, there's no point in this movie where I'm like nothing that I, I wouldn't want in the movie. Right. I think everything that's in the movie deserves to be in the movie and every character gets their moment. Like, again, like, even like, as I mentioned, like they had to add stuff for Argyle, but even Argyle getting his moment at the end uh, is such a sweet little moment. And him, uh, like, just like the little, that one shot of Argyle where like the chaos is happening behind him and he's just on the phone with this big ass smile on his face. Right, right. <laughs> but then him, like, finally, like, paying attention to what's going on on the radio once, like, it starts to get, like, word that, like, hey, like, the, the news starts to get, the media starts to get out about it. 
it, it, it's super it, it, it's just a super fun character even with that small little role yeah yeah i just uh they make they make a meal out of it and they they do it well yeah and again i, I think what also works about the movie and it would be remiss we've talked about a lot of the fun elements of it but i do think that like especially with this first one like the little bits of McLean opening up about like hey if i don't make it out of here like the little bit of drama that he gets as things get more and more hectic for him and as he puts good poor more danger and he realizes that like hey like you know i never told my wife i'm sorry like that also adds so much of a depth to the movie as well it's not just like a big action shooting guys and everything like that that McLean does get these moments to really showcase like listen like i this is what's about getting back together with my wife and and really realizing sort of the life that I have and the situation I'm in and, and what, what life should be. And I think there's that element of McLean sort of coming to terms with that throughout the movie that I think is, is very sweet, especially as you take this movie on its own. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is again, always the thing where it's like, I feel like there's, we've gone all over the place. I feel like there's stuff I'm forgetting lines that are great that I'm, I'm, I'm missing. Um, the just like oh man there's so much that well, i want to mention we, I, there there is i do think this is a scene i think a moment in the film that we do probably need to talk about even more is the face-to-face uh with rickman and uh with the uh, hans and mclean and uh and uh what's his name bill bill clay <laughs> clay bill, bill clay, clay. <laughs> like you know that, uh, that that's yeah. kind of Oh no! You're, you're you're one of them. You're one of them. No, you're gonna kill yeah, me! Yeah. Please, please don't kill me. <laughs> it's just fun, and I, what I also love about it too, I do love again how it presents both of them as like not being dumb, right? Because it's easy to be like like McLean would have been fully taken in by it and been like, okay, well, I give you the gun. Oh no, whatever. But the fact that like he gives him the gun that doesn't have any bullets in it and is like. <laughs> You think I'm dumb, huh? No, no bullets. You think I'm a dumbass? Well, they're, yeah, they're, I, I, that's the, I, for some reason I always remember that one. Oh, no bullets! Give me that. <laughs> it just takes the gun back. <laughs> yeah, but I, but again, it's like a nice little moment where like they're like again like uh, Rickman gets to showcase some just little fun. Like, hey, I'm gonna put on a funny little American accent here, and he gets to have a good time. Um, I like. Again, also another running gag I love throughout the movie is like the smoking thing, right? First of all, always fun to see a movie that reminds you that one point smoking in airports was okay because he just lights up yeah, at, the yes, bag- yeah, at, the, yeah, at the baggage yeah. claim. Uh, but then there's the whole bit where like when he when he's talking to Hans on the radio for the first time and he's like looking, for, he finds like the C4 and the detonators and whatnot. And he's like, he takes the smokes out of the guy. He's like, oh, these are bad for you. And then he immediately like, these are very bad for you and immediately lights one up. And then again, same thing when he like goes to uh, when you're talking with 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 Gruber in his American guys is with Bill Clay guys he's like, do you smoke? Yeah. And he's just like start. They start lighting up with each other. New York. Like, I, yeah, it's it's a super fun <laughs> little moment, too. Oh, it's so um, good. And it's... again, just like I just a, I love the play. like this is a movie worth like if you're teaching screenwriting, right? Like this is a movie full of plants and payoffs that are just so like innocuous and like serve multiple purposes. Like we talked about the one with the feet, right? Cause it, it, it serves the purpose of introducing the character. It serves the purpose of being a, 
a a sense of drama to McLean where like he has no shoes on. And again, like another little fun McLean line is when he ta- takes the one, sh- you know, the first terrorist he shoots his shoes. And he's like, of all the terrorists in the world, I have to pick the one with feet smaller than my sister. And he just throws the shoe <laughs> off. But then like, again, even that, like it gets to the point where he has to run across the glass and he's picking out the glass as he's making like this big speech about how he just wants to say sorry to his wife. And it becomes a big dramatic moment. I talk about the watch because that's a big thing, right? Because the watch seems like, at the first time you hear about it, when like you know what uh, what's her when um Alice is bragging about Holly's watch and like oh it's a Rolex and she got it because she just landed this big deal, and it really just seems as like okay this is a means for us to showcase the 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 gap between Willis you know and and and, and McLean and and Holly where like you know she's having this big successful career and getting these big Rolex watches as gifts and she's super popular in this company and. You know, she's like a leader of these people. And McLean is just as everyday, you know, regular Joe cop and sort of the different worlds they live in. It just seems like it's just something to emphasize that. Whereas at the end of the movie, it becomes like the most vital piece of like defeating the villain because like, you know, Rickman falls out the window. He's holding on to the watch and Holly's falling out the window. And McLean eventually like, hey, like he gets rid of the watch and like lets Gruber fall. And sort of it, it acts as a metaphor for their relationship while also acting as sort of like this thing that was talked about once at the beginning of the movie. All of a sudden it comes back and plays an important role. It's great. That's another great line from the police chief too. When, when he sees Gruber falling, he's like, God, I hope that's not a hostage. Like he's just so concerned about his <laughs> yes, career. Yes, yes, yes. That's the one I forgot. Thank you for bringing it up. I think that was the hardest I like because because the way it's cut too, it's like the big dramatic bad guy. Like, oh my god, this guy's about to fall to his death, and then it just hard cuts to. Hope that's not Austin. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Yeah, no, it's easy to miss like shit like that unless like you're taking notes. Right. It's just so. But, um, it's so. There's just so much good stuff in this movie i think like, like that's again what's hard to talk about it. i'm sure once i hit stop on this recording and i like start editing or whatever like i'm sure there's gonna be moments i i wish i would have brought up uh because there's sometimes i have episodes where i do that where i forgot about this moment um um oh i just thought of another one too god i thought of another one where when he's talking to when hans is talking to um uh Mr. Takagi at the beginning of the movie, like when they're trying to get the codes and he's like talking about like, first of all, he talks about the model of the thing is like, oh, I, I love models. I remember when I was a kid, the intricacy again, little, little bit of character there. Cause he has this very intricate plan. And he's like, like, I love building models. Like their intricacy, the little details, like that's really about this whole plan. And like he also compliments the suit and he's like, is this about our thing in Indonesia? Like I tell you, we're developing the reason we're not ruining anything. Like, and then Hans brings the boys like, listen, I would love to talk about men's fashion and architecture for, for hours. I really would, but we have other things we have to deal with. We have some fill in the blank questions. Just like the little, little details of like, he's a man of culture, but he wants his money very badly. And it, it's, just, <laughs> it's super nice. I, I just like little yeah. bits like that. I love. Oh yeah, no, but then like at like the end of the movie, right? Like we get like the whole thing. Um again, like the 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 FBI guys are playing like Rambo themselves and like like McLean, like they're gonna have everybody come up to the roof and they think everybody's gonna be dead, but McLean's like, hey guys, like 
Like they're going to blow up the roof. Everybody get off. And they, he, she starts shooting to scare everybody. It's great. Um, and then, you know, he does the thing with the, the fire rope, which again, another nice little beat when the fire, like he has the fire rope and he's like, God, like, I, like, you know, I hope that like, I really hope I survive this. He comes, he jumps down, he crashes through the window. He like has that moment, that beat. And then like the, the fire hose starts falling down and he starts dragging him out like, like little moments like that. Eventually yeah, Hans falls to his death after he, the watch thing and, and their little confrontation there. He's been beat up. He's bloody. He's bruised. He's dirty. His feet are killing him. He finally gets downstairs and he meets Val Johnson, Reginald Val Johnson, and they have a little moment together. And then again, the, the guy's brother got killed, right? Like he comes in as, as if he were Jason. He, like he's all bloody and like almost dead. And he so has, like, ridiculous. It, it's so absurd and it's so over the top, but it's it, awesome. It's, it's such a Jason Friday the 13th moment, right? Or like Michael Myers in Halloween. And then, and then Al finally gets the shot and he finally gets to redeem himself. And then Argyle comes through and then like, he's like, Hey man, like that, that guy's with me. Um, the 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 newsman comes up holly punches him great moment great moment right there argyle gets the final word this is how they celebrate christmas i gotta see what they do for new year's <laughs> and then we 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 go out on a christmas song proving once again this is the greatest christmas movie of all time um you know what i i, I enjoyed the movie so much i don't even feel like having the debate about it <laughs> It's about the spirit of the season, right? It's about families it's not, coming together. Uh, uh, I'll let you have it. All right. Uh, credits roll and man, what a movie. What is this? What a movie. It's, it's easily like yeah. one of the great action movies of its era. It holds up so incredibly well. It's still so just fun, funny, thrilling to watch. And it really just proves to me like, hey, like, you know what? Make a movie funny. Just make a movie funny and it's going to be a good time. Like people complain about Marvel movies being funny. I'd rather take a funny Marvel movie or a funny diehard movie than one that takes itself a little too seriously. Yeah, it is interesting because I was thinking about like how, because I don't know, I even though I do think the new ones, they progressively get over, too over the top. I don't think that that was like necessarily like not the direction you could have gone in because John McClane does some ridiculous things. So I was thinking like, and again, I, I, I I'm sure we will talk about it when we get there but it's just not the same though the rest of those movies aren't the same level of silly fun mm -hmm. like and i don't know if it's a level of like if it's taking itself seriously as an action movie it's going to be interesting watching them i mean it's kind of like that's why i think die hard with a vengeance probably like emulates this movie like in, in terms of that tone enough so yeah yeah i guess we'll see during this whole journey yep um yeah. And it's just like, listen, if you're listening and you've never seen this movie, like pop it and find it, like put it on, it's rent it. Like it's just, it's just so incredibly fun. And it's just a mm -hmm. fun time. Yeah. And I really could, movie I could put on at any time and, and just enjoy myself. It's really just a great Absolutely. time. Absolutely. So good. All right. So we get to the release of the movie again, July. Uh, 15th, 1988. And there was a lot of expectation that this movie was going to bomb. As I mentioned, like it was just like, it, it didn't have a Schwarzenegger. It didn't have a Clint Eastwood. It didn't have a Stallone. Um, 
uh, you know, it had another Schwarzenegger had another action movie that summer. Red Heat. Clint Eastwood had another Dirty Harry movie that summer. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was one of those situations where, like, we already had such a, a big year in movies up to that point. We had a Rambo sequel, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like, people thought that, okay, this is kind of like the July movie that would be nobody's business and that people wouldn't want to see it. And, like, Willis was someone who was, you know, given, like, five million bucks for this movie. And people were like, well, why are you giving the TV star that much money for a movie that no one's going to see? Um, it was going to have some some competition that summer as well from the, from its release point. Um, and it, it just wasn't, people weren't really into this idea that the movie was going to make money and right, spoiler right. alert, it did make money. Um, it was a big success, uh, eventually grossing, uh, $139 million worldwide on a $25 million budget. Uh, the reviews were off the charts. It had a very high opening weekend. Um, for its time, um, 7.1 million that opening weekend. Uh, and a fun fact about the movie is that Die Hard, the first one, never claimed the number one spot uh, throughout its time in its initial release. But it was a movie that had a very consistent word of mouth and consistently stayed within the top five and top ten as it went along. And it was a movie that was um, very... Like it just surprised a lot of people, just like how much it stayed into the 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 box office. Obviously, like it's honestly like a movie that is very different in a success, but similarly, uh, is a decade later is Titanic in that same respect, where it's like you know obviously Titanic did make it to number one, but was a movie that like its success was predicated off word of mouth and the fact that people kept going to see it. And the same thing with Die Hard. Die Hard never hit that number one spot, but it was a movie that like just kept making money because it was a movie that people said, you've got to see this. It's, it was a really good time with the movie. Uh, generally speaking, um, it was a movie that added to that 1988 summer of success um, that included, as previously mentioned, the Who Framed Roger Rabbits, Pee-wee's Big Top and Bull Durham and, and uh, Fish Called Wanda, Big Cocktail. Uh, summer of 88, uh, the Coming to America, was regarded as one of the most successful summers of all time. Uh, and um, Die Hard was a big part of that, and well-reviewed as well. People were very uh, happy with the movie's humor, with its tone, with the directing, and with uh, Willis's performance and Rickman's performance, and both of their careers were essentially made off this movie. Uh, Rickman and Willis obviously would become big staples of film for the next decades, right, all the way up until uh, the 2010s, and it was both predicated on the fact that they made this movie and they were super successful and super well-reviewed in it. Um, so it, it definitely had an influence on the, the future star them of, of cinema for sure. Um, though uh, the movie itself uh, has only grown in stature over the years. Um, while it was well-reviewed uh, as I mentioned in its uh, initial run, um, it wasn't the, like 100%. It was more in that 70% sort of range. But over the years, um, the movie has just gotten more and more affection for it, um, especially as sort of the sequels happen. People always go back to this one and being like, what a good movie it was. Yeah. And uh, yeah. 
That's cool. it. Um, with that, we're done with Die yeah. Hard one. I, I'm I'm following your lead. I I didn't know. That. I thought you were talking. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was trying to think if there's anything else to talk about. Obviously, like it's one of those things where um, it's it ended up spawning like this franchise, which we're going to talk about, and a lot of uh, merchandise eventually over the years. Um, but a lot of that is kind of more into talking about uh, the next movie, which mm-hmm. is Die Hard in an Airport. Um, the one I remember the least. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So this is the movie we're going to talk about next time that really spawns like because Die Hard spawns this sort of uh genre right of like die hard in a because everybody calls speed died hard in the bus right it's like Mm -hmm. we got to save hostages we got to save people in one distinct location um and so next time we're going to talk about a movie that uh, has a lot of similarities to this one uh in terms of its structure and its pacing and everything like that and we'll see if if success rings twice as we take a look at die hard 2 or also known as die hard 2 die harder That is not okay. a joke name. In some in some yeah. territories, it officially is known as Die Harder. Crazy. Um, uh, but next time we get on the mic, we'll be back to Planet of the Apes, which I'm very excited to get into. We'll be taking a look at the first sequel to Planet of the Apes. We're going to head underneath the surface, and we're going to find out what lies beneath the Planet of the Apes. Well, let's do it. Can't wait. All right. Uh, once again, I want to thank everybody for listening. Obviously, um, our schedules have been all over the place and we try to get these out as best we can. You know, we try our best. Uh, we'll still continue to alternate our film series, but we thank you for sticking with us and just, Hey, when we, when we get these out there, we'll get them out as consistently as we can. And we thank you for your patience again with us as we record these episodes, we still have a blast doing them. And we've actually talked about even further franchise beyond these two that we want to, we, we want to discuss in the future. So, um, if things keep going well, we'll keep doing this. Uh, bonsillapod at gmail.com twitter.com bonsill 7 like and subscribe itunes and soundcloud again thank you for your reviews and your listens and your love we do always appreciate it um we know that there's still a lot going on too in the bond and on godzilla universes we just had a confirmation of another monsterverse movie which i'm very excited about um and uh we've heard barbara broccoli talk about uh that the next bond will be a complete reinvention so we'll have to see where that leads but for the moment we're we're aped out and die hard out and we're going to be continuing with those franchises but thanks again to the kaiju and bond communities for continuing to support us uh we really do appreciate it great thanks guys all right we'll talk to you next time everyone or you'll hear us talk um or you can talk to us if you want yeah, yeah. yeah you can just you can just talk to the screen if you want yeah to. yeah and then that maybe works. and maybe write a tweet too because you know that would probably be the best way to actually contact us but yeah if you want to talk to your phone while you're listening to us, by all means, as long as you're not bothering anybody too much, I'm, I'm fine with it. All right. All right. Take, take care. Take care, everybody. Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight.